Uh, yes, sir. Which one would you like? That one? Well, good morning. You will never know who you are or where you're headed until you know where you're from. Amen. Say that again. Amen. You'll never know who you are or where you are headed until you know where you are from. The book of Genesis, I believe, was written for the very purpose of explaining the answers to these questions. To communicate specifically at, at the time to Israel, we got to remember that the book of Genesis, while so familiar to us, uh, was written in a specific period and time for a specific audience, and that was the children of Israel. Uh, to, to communicate to them who they were and where they came from and where they were to go. But Genesis is not now just a history book for us now, just to see what Israel needed to hear uh, some 4,000, 3 or 4,000 years ago. It is intended to inform us as well. It is a book of rich application. And this morning, we're going to begin a new series that I hope to complete within this calendar year where we are going to travel through the entirety of the book of Genesis. Amen. That might sound overwhelming, and it is in some ways. We're actually going to break it up into probably four uh, sequential series. And this first series is Created for Blessing. Amen. Six sermons taking us through the first 11 chapters of this glorious book. But in Genesis chapter 1, we find perhaps no other chapter in scriptures that is quite as well known, yet less agreed upon as this chapter. From what appears to be a simple, brief, chronological account of how creation came into being, comes an array of explanations from all different sources and peoples, who think what really happened. They want to tell us how they're right and, and, and maybe someone who would read the Bible literally is wrong. Yeah. I would say that uh, it's clear that to some people the creation account of Genesis is nothing more than a fairy tale, a myth, or an attempt to explain the beginning of the universe from a pre-scientific perspective. It's my opinion that people who believe that <clears throat> are are. Uh, largely uninformed of how intelligent our ancestors were. Amen. Far more intelligent than we give them credit for. But the questions, I will say, and debates about ages and days and time periods and means and methods of, of creation that surround this chapter, I'm going to tell you, while we love those truths... Uh, especially those of us who love apologetics, those of us who are, I think all of our, our church is pretty well invested in answers in Genesis and how that informs our life. I, would, I believe that according to the author, most of those ideas are distractions from the true pursuit of this chapter. There's a greater interest 
of the author for the listener than to just get an idea of how long it took God to create everything. I mean, that's important. Don't get me wrong. It's incredibly important. Okay? But there's a greater and larger uh, 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 a reason in play. We talk about the author. It's long been held uh, that uh, Moses, Jewish tradition tells us that Moses wrote Genesis. And uh, strangely, as I was studying this, I found out that this is actually a matter of debate over the last few hundred years, uh, two or three hundred years. But what settles it for me is that Jesus attributes the authorship of Genesis to Moses in John chapter 5. And it's easy then when we realize that Moses is the one who put this together well, if you look at Moses' life and, and the events of his life, and we have much of that recorded for us, most of it maybe, um, uh, it, I think it's easy for us to make the connection that the period of time that he was writing and putting together the book of Genesis and the rest of the Torah would be that time where uh, those 40 years while they were in the wilderness, while, he, while Israel was in uh, the wilderness. Um, until he, until he left them under Joshua's care. He undoubtedly grew this, these books and these stories and this history on oral history. He recorded it from that. His, also his early education in Egypt's courts. Um, and also I think that no doubt much of what he wrote was supplemented by his time spent with God himself on the mountain. Amen. And in the, temple, in the tabernacle. But I don't believe that Moses wrote Genesis 1 again, ex- uh, that, he, that he wrote Genesis 1 to explain scientific methods and time frames behind creation. He had a deeper purpose. Again, you'll never know who you are or where you're headed until you know where you're from. Moses had been used of God to deliver Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And in Egypt, the Israelites had been immersed in the world systems and religions. They had been uh, uh, completely immersed in in the world's views of who God was and why the world existed and what they were supposed to be doing in this world. But now Israel was freed from that. And God wanted Israel to fulfill God's created purpose for them. So let's take a look at how uh, that is shown to us in the text. If you haven't already, open your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 1. It is on page, let me see, it's on page 1 of my Bible. We're going to start in verse 1. We're just going to read the first 25 verses. We are going to travel through chapter 2, verse 3. I think that is the entire uh, um, uh, passage uh, that fits together for this message. Um, and for the author, I think he intended that to all fit together because everything kind of starts anew on verse 4 of the next chapter. And we'll talk about that next week. But it begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, he created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. 
And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. If you get caught up in some of this and get a little confused, read it again and again and again and again, okay? It's good. And God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Verse 9, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed, and the fruit and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament for the, uh, of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the night, excuse me, to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and, the, and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moved, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And for the moment, we'll stop right there. First, we see that God creates the world that is around us. God creates the world. That's if, you want, if you're looking to make points, that's the first point. God creates the world. And I have a few observations about God. The creation story reveals God's eternity. If you look at verse 1, how does it begin? In the beginning, God. Is there any place in this passage where it talks about where God came from? Does it talk about uh, uh, how God was created, how God was born, how, where, where, uh, where God was sprung from? Does it, does it do anything like that? No, it speaks to God's eternity. It presupposes God's existence before all of creation. The st- creation story reveals God's eternity, and there is none like him, let me tell you. The creation story also reveals God's independence. God is independent, and that's something we don't often 
really put a lot of importance on. I think we forget that sometimes uh, because we will put limitations on God. But God is independent from any limitation. God is independent from, uh, uh, from any part of this habitat we call the cosmos. I'll say that a lot probably in the next few weeks. He is independent. He is eternal and present before creation. He is outside of time, space, and matter. I believe that because I believe Genesis 1 verses 1, 2, and 3 show us exactly when time, space, and matter were actually created. And guess who created it? It was God. It's really hard. I think one of the hardest things for most of us to cope with is the idea that God is eternal, that he is outside of time. And and so I'm going to chase that rabbit trail for just a little bit and tell you uh, an, an, an idea, an illustration that I learned uh, that helped me tremendously in this. Uh, imagine life as a carnival. No, excuse me, a parade. How many of y'all ever been to a parade? You've probably been to like an Astros World Series parade. Boo. Uh, when, you go, when, you're, when, you're, when you go to a parade and you're, um, uh, you're observing that parade, what do you want to do? You want to get a good spot, right? Okay, you, you want to get lined up along the road because the parade is going to have a beginning and an end and you don't want to miss any part of it. And if you can, you want to have a front row seat, right? Well, imagine you're, you're going to a parade and you're very late and the only seat that you can get is behind a, a fence. And the only view that you have is through a hole in that fence. What part of that parade are you going to be able to see The, that one tiny bit of the parade that is directly in front of you, correct? You're going to see only what is passing as it passes. You'll be, re- you'll be able to remember what has already passed. time, And we can remember what has already passed, but we have no idea what is going to happen next. But God, who has created time, is outside of time, and his view, even better than being right there on the curb in his chair with his Yeti drink right there next to him, he is in a helicopter and he can see the whole thing from beginning to end, and he knows exactly what is taking place the entire time. God is outside of time. He, he knows the beginning from the end. In fact, if you go to the last book of the Bible, he knows how it's going to Everything's going to finish. And he's told us pieces of that. God is outside of time. The creation story reveals God's eternity. It reveals his independence. We see the creation of time, space, and matter in verses 1 through 3. And the logical conclusion is that God is not dependent on the habitat of the cosmos. He has no, there's nothing here that he needs to exist to have anything that he has, there's nothing here that he has created that he needs. He is independent from it. The creation story also reveals God's wisdom. He is omniscient. That's what, that's what uh, it means all-knowing. He knows all things. Not only does he know all things, he's wise. He is an all-wise God. His wisdom is shown in the orderliness of, of this creation account. And I could go on and on about this. Created in six days. By the way, if you have a question in your mind about 
why uh, or, or how, many, how long it actually took, if it was six days or if it was uh, uh, six days and an age existing between each day or, or each day was an age. There's so many of these different theories, it's ridiculous and hard to keep up with. Uh, but if you have questions about that, I will give you some really good advice about biblical interpretation, okay? You can write this down. You ready? If the plain sense makes common sense, then seek no other sense, lest you make it nonsense. If the plain sense makes common sense, then seek no other sense. Uh, If you read this account, the word used for day is the word yom, and in the way it is presented, it is presented as a single 24-hour day. One after the other, not one and then a billion years, one after another. Six literal 24-hour days of creation. In fact, in in that orderliness of this account, it talks about the morning and the evening. It talks about it being good. It It talks about how orderly it is. It's created in an orderly fashion, in an orderly order. In fact, that order, I would think, uh, is interesting because it speaks directly against what um, uh, uh, directly against what many of the prevailing ideas about evolution and origins is right now. They would say that uh, certain things came before other things. God said that light and darkness was on day one. The atmosphere, or we see it repeated over and over as the firmament or the sky in day two, dry land and plant life created on day three, sun, moon, and stars, and all other celestial bodies created on day four, day five, animals of the sky and of the water are created, and then day six, land animals and man. It's orderly. Not only is it does that reveal his wisdom, but his, God's wisdom is shown in the deep scientific complexity of his creation. My goodness. If you, I would encourage you, if you have any interest in that idea, write down the term uh, irreducible complexity. And then irreducible, you cannot reduce it, complexity. That means uh, a system that exists in such harmony and in such complexity, uh, that is so complex that if you remove one variable, the whole system collapses. Man, that is, we are surrounded by that nonstop. And it, is a, it reveals God's tremendous wisdom. God's wisdom is shown that his, uh, in that his creation, which was created many thousands of years ago, still functions and works as he created it originally. How many of y'all have ever? Um, how many of y'all have ever tried to restore a car? <laughs> I know Brother Raymond's probably restored a, a couple of cars. Brother Bob, um, or or tried to restore or or create something, make make something, like to create things, build things. How many of y'all have ever built a shed, put together a lawnmower? I mean, if you've done these things, let me ask you: um, Did it last forever? I had a 67 Volkswagen Beetle. I could hardly get that thing to last for two weeks without me driving it. Yet God created the entirety of the cosmos and it still works. Exactly the way he designed it to work. God's, the creation story reveals God's eternity, his independence, his uh, tremendous 
wisdom. It also reveals God's power. That's important. What is God's method of creation? What have we witnessed? How has he done this? He went to, he went to Lowe's and bought a kit, right? He spoke it. Divine fiat. Divine imperative. How many of y'all would like to have uh, the ability to speak something into existence? Man, forget about DoorDash then, right? <laughs> Let there be chimichangas. Let there be weight loss. Man, boom. Praise the Lord. Let there be extra zeros in my bank account. And not just the one zero that's there. Only God has this power. Only God. God is the only one that we know who can operate this way. And he called all of this into existence in its full complexity. Unequaled power. Unimaginable power. Marvel Studios cannot come up with this kind of power. The creation story reveals God's goodness. I couldn't, I couldn't skip this. Everything that God made was, man, it was good. He saw that it was good. The, this goodness of creation, I think, only can be reflective of the creator. It was good because God is good. Amen. It, it reveals his goodness. The creation story reveals God's sovereignty. We're going to... Park here for just a little bit. God, being all wise and all powerful, and the one creator is the only being that can be truly sovereign over all things. You follow what I'm saying here? God being the only God that God is, is the only God that can rule everything. He's the only one fit to rule. He's the only one who has the right to rule everything, including you and your life and my life. Psalms 103.19, the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. I'd say that's pretty clear. God is sovereign. Not only that, but the creation account itself as recorded by Moses speaks specifically to his sovereignty in ways that... Uh, us who are not uh, 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 Israelites walking the, uh, the wilderness with Moses couldn't understand. You see, these Israelites, we're going to go back to them for a second. When, when the Israelites left Egypt, it had been a long time since they had fully understood and lived according to who their God truly was. The God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph was no longer really preeminent in their life, and they struggled with it. We saw it there at Mount Sinai. We saw it when they complained to Moses and said, hey, we had a better situation back in Egypt. We should just go back there. We see it, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But, But 
they didn't get it. They no longer understood the sovereignty of their God, the power of their God, the wisdom of the God. They were influenced by the beliefs of other Eastern cultures. I'll give one example. There's several examples, but I'll give one example around Israel. Uh, there were other creation accounts to believe in that the Genesis account directly refutes. One example is the begetting of gods in the opening lines of the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And according to the Enuma Elish, I'm mispronouncing that, but there's no Babylonians to correct me here. Uh, The creation of the cosmos was accomplished through the mixture of male and female waters, fresh water and seawater, perhaps the mouths of the Tigris and the Euphrates, by uh, uh, some people think. And, and, and I'll just read the first few lines. It says, when the skies above were not yet named. This is not Bible scripture. This is Babylonian scripture, okay? When the skies above were not yet named, nor earth below pronounced by name, Apsu, which were the male waters, the first one, their begetter, and maker Tiamat, which were the female waters, who bore them all, had mixed their waters together. Then gods were born within them. And then follows from that the genealogy of the Babylonian gods. And Tiamat beget two pairs of twins, and, and, uh, and, and they started having wars of their wills against one another, and, and it develops this uh, complex family tree of gods that explains all the different various uh, aspects of the natural world. And Genesis 1 directly refutes it. Directly. What are the two main gods that came together and supposedly created all of everything through this family tree of gods? It was Apsu and Tiamat, the maker. But we see, we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. So there's no waters coming together. God separated them. Instead of many gods, there is one God alone. Instead of gods who war with one another, will against will, there is one will which rules over everything without the slightest hindrance from anything or anyone. A God who stands above nature, outside of nature, uncreated and self-existent and eternal. I mean, that is a tremendous contrast from what uh, the, the, the Babylonians believed. This idea deals with other contemporary beliefs of the time too. Other pagan gods related to the deep, uh, also the luminaries or the stars. Also, there's other uh, beliefs, uh, uh, cosmologies uh, about sea monsters, how they created the world, all of which are refuted by Genesis chapter 1. And I love the fact that while these other, these other uh, uh, religious cultural beliefs had names for these waters and everything, None of those have specific names because it is one God in the Genesis account who creates all of it. None of them have any bearing or any uh, means of control or power over this one true God. He is in absolute control. Speaks to God's sovereignty. What was that quote we're trying to pursue? You'll never know who you are or where you're headed until you know where you're from. According to Genesis chapter 1, you are part of God's eternal creation, made good in his eyes, and he is an eternal, independent, all-wise, all-powerful, 
all good and sovereign God. That's where you and I come from. But let's look at how God creates mankind. If you turn back to chapter, uh, verse, verse 26. The account of creation has been very uh, predictable. It, it has a routine to it. God calls and he says, let this bring forth, let this happen, uh, let these things beget these things. Then God changes his mode, his method. Verse 26. Then God said in verse 26, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So we saw God, uh, uh, God creating the world, God creates the world, then God creates mankind. A few observations. Mankind's creation is significant. The creation of mankind is significant. Maybe I should have worded it that way. It is such a significant event that it is the only event in creation that called for God's direct and immediate involvement. It is the only event in creation in which God was clearly, personally present in that space. We'll see more about that in the next uh, uh, sermon, the next uh, passage of Scripture next week. But he, he stopped the other form of creation he was doing, and he said, hold on, we're going to do this one differently. Three times the first person plural is employed. Let us make. Man, in our image, after our likeness. That means God was directly involved. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't involved in the creation of other things. Of course he was. It says that he, he cast, he called everything into existence. But in that moment, he came and I believe he created Adam and Eve right before his eyes. I mean, within a very close personal proximity. Genesis presents man as the culmination of God's creative activity. He is created not only uh, uh, in God's image, but created for a specific purpose. A far greater purpose than just being abundant and having more after our kind. We're the culmination. Mankind's creation in God's image also means we are independent from our habitat. Um, how many of y'all have ever been to SeaWorld? SeaWorld's a cool place. I don't know if they do that like they did when I was a kid, when I was like nine years old when we went. I got to pet a dolphin, right? Where do dolphins live? In the sea. So dolphins would have been created back on day... 
Yeah, day five, right? The stuff that's in the waters that are going to bring forth other stuff from the waters were put in a specific habitat called the, the waters. If you take a dolphin out of the water, what does it do? It dies. Uh, we, we used to live in uh, Texas City. Uh, Texas City, of course, is not as glamorous as Galveston. But we have a beach or a mud hole. We called it the mud hole. Um, called the dike, the Texas City dike. Anybody ever been on the Texas City dike? It's like a five-mile long road. It's, a, it's the world's longest uh, fishing, man-made fishing pier. And, um, but it was, uh, it was fun to take the kids sometimes to the beach, and we'd always come back smelly and have to shower everybody really right away. But I remember one time we went to the beach, and there was a dolphin on the beach. The dolphin was not long, no longer alive. We went to the beach one time. There was a shark on the beach. A little, it was only about four feet long. Guess what? That shark could not live in the habitat of the beach. It was dry land. It, wasn't, it was dependent on that water. It had to be there. We are made in God's image independent from any habitat that exists on earth. Guess who we're dependent on? God. There are people who live in Antarctica. There are people who live in the Siberian uh, uh, winter space, wilderness. There's people who live uh, in California, believe it or not. I don't know how they can stand it. We can live anywhere. We're created different. We're not dependent on on some specific habitat. Yes, do we have physical needs? Absolutely, we have physical needs. We are a creation. But we're, we're dependent on God. Only on God. That contrasts all other, all other creations that we see throughout this passage. Man is created in God's image. still means that we are a creation. We're not completely like the creator. We do not have divine fiat. You cannot call extra zeros into your bank account or chimichangas whenever you want them. We are created beings, yet being his image bearers clearly attaches to us a responsibility of representing God's will. Read that verse uh, 26 again with me. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God has given us a divine purpose to represent him. I like this. How many of y'all like to have some meaning to your life? If you don't live with a meaning in your life, it feels a bit meaningless, doesn't it? You know, we're surrounded by a world of people who do not understand the meaning of their life. They don't know who they are or where they're from. So they have no idea where they're going in life. God has attached to us this responsibility of representing God in his creation. 
going to talk a little more about that, but let's finish this passage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens, excuse me, I'll, I'll start in verse 28 and we'll finish that. God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb yielding seed upon uh, which upon the the face of all the earth and every tree and the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed to you it shall be for meat and to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth there wherein there is life I have given every green herb for meat and it was so everybody was vegetarians they really liked salad for a long time and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and the evening and the morning were the sixth day thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And, of the se- and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. I want to make an observation about God's rest. I believe the best way to describe his rest is that he rested to reign. Uh, nowhere, we see that God sets himself to rest, but nowhere is God's sovereignty abdicated or laid aside. His rulership has endured from day one and will continue to endure for all eternity. Yet God has established us as his royal representatives to see his will done on earth. Because man represents God, Because of that, God clearly still has an interest in the earth. You know, some people read this and they'll stop and they'll say, what God did is he kind of created everything and he kind of like got this this earth spinning. And then he said, cool, I like that. That's very good. All right, I'm going to check out. Y'all have fun with it. Have you ever heard somebody say that or present that idea that, that God just kind of got everything going and then turned it loose for whatever's going to happen? Yeah, deism. Or they might even say it was ancient aliens. I'll not chase that at all. Sorry, <laughs> I even said it. There's nowhere in Scripture that it shows that God started everything up and cut it loose. God's will for the cosmos is still the original plan and will for the cosmos. God's priorities are still of supreme importance in the cosmos. Our image bearing for him did not stop with Genesis chapter 3. God's practices, the way he wants his will to be enacted and his priorities to be pursued, are still the means by which God's will and priorities are to act in his creation. Therefore, if you want to know why any of this matters for any of us, it means we're to align ourselves with his will, his priorities, and the way he wants things done. But our representation of God as mankind, mankind's representation of God has not gone perfectly or flawlessly, has it? In fact, they screwed it up pretty early on, didn't they? 
We're going to talk about that, but, but we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it now because uh, Adam and Eve were set to be uh, 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 the, God's representatives of his will and his priorities. And then it was Israel. And then now it's his redeemed. Mankind has failed to represent God as he had intended. The fall of man has had its effect. After mankind failed, God's will for us, though, did not change, but intervention was required. I don't know about all of you here, but I will tell you that if you're here and you're not a member of this church, or maybe you're a member of this church, but you're not certain about your salvation, let me tell you again that while we are to represent God, we have failed in that pursuit. So God decided to intervene with Jesus Christ. Jesus, for us, is the true culmination, the true uh, perfect representation of God on earth. Jesus perfectly represented God's will. Jesus perfectly pursued God's priorities. God maintained perfect adherence to God's practices. And, uh, and, and Jesus, when he, in doing these things, Jesus performed the perfect work of redeeming the world to himself. Jesus was born of a virgin, as told. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus gave himself. He was not taken against his will to the cross. He allowed that to happen so that he could die on the cross, shedding his blood for you and me. So that not only could we be, uh, receive the forgiveness of our sins, because that's what separates us from God, That's what has blown this opportunity for us to represent God. Sin has done that. Not only, though, has it given us an an opportunity of forgiveness of sins and, and a hope of eternal salvation, but it's brought us right back into the opportunity of of uh, representing God here on earth. I, I hope, I hope that I'm connecting this well enough for you this morning because your life has tremendous meaning. Your life has abundant meaning. If you've ever felt like, man, what am I doing? Everything I do is just meaningless. I'm wasting my time. Uh, 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 we were listening to a sermon uh, yesterday uh, afternoon, or yesterday morning, actually, and, and a friend of mine who's a, another pastor and, and up in Lake Worth was telling a story about, um, about he, he works in uh, search and rescue. He's a former police officer, and... Um, and one of the tests he has to do to, to qualify for uh, search and rescue is he has to do a rowing machine test. And he said, uh, you know, when you're rowing on a rowing machine, guess where you go? You don't go anywhere. Sometimes we feel like we're just rowing and rowing and we're not going anywhere. We're doing all this work and it doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you, if you want your life to make sense, you need to align with God's will. And the first way to do that is to become one of his children to allow him to redeem you to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus died on the cross, but not only that, he secured for us eternal life through his resurrection. And the only thing that is required of us is the humility to say, God, I understand that I am a sinner and you are a holy God and you must judge sin. And my only hope for forgiveness is to put it all, all my hope in you. And to trust him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever what? 
goes to church enough and tithes and, and drives a nice car and pays his bills on time, gets to go to heaven. That's what it says, right? No. Whosoever, no matter how much of a screw-up you are, no matter how many times you've told yourself, God would never accept me, no matter how many times you've thought, why would God love me? I'm such a miserable, awful person. I've screwed up so many times. I've ruined so many other people's lives. Why would God see any value in me in all, at all? The reason why God sees value in you is because he created you for him, to represent him in this world to see his will enacted in this world, to, to pursue his priorities, to give it tremendous meaning to your life. And so he died on the cross so that he could redeem you into that perfect plan of the cosmos, this great and tremendous plan God has for all of creation. No matter how worthless and meaningless you think your life is, God doesn't see you that way at all. And that has been demonstrated through the cross. And it says in John 3.16, whosoever believes. And that whosoever, I love that, that word, that King James word that nobody uses anywhere any, at all anymore. <laughs> what does it mean? It means anybody. You're the, if you're the filthiest scumbag, you're a whosoever. Charles Manson is a whosoever. Adolf Hitler. You may not want to be lumped in with him. Hey, when you look at it, you stand before God, you are. He's a whosoever. Bob Simpson. Bob, are you a whosoever? Amen. Eric. Big, glorious Eric. It's a whosoever. And whosoever believes in him it has a promise, shall not perish. Will this body die? Absolutely. But the true you, the eternal soul that God breathed into you, will not die, but have everlasting life. Listen, you want to have a life of meaning? It's time for us to learn how to represent the ruler. To align ourselves with his will. To to pursue what is important to him, not to pursue what's important to us. Hey, listen, there's no meaning in that. If, if your life's happiness is going to be rooted in making sure you get everything your way, you're never, ever going to be happy. Ever. Because all that this world has to give is never enough. The American dream will never be enough. Only God. Our true creator can give us true meaning. Let's stand together.